One of the unique aspects of the Ukraine war, and indeed the Maidan revolution that preceded Russia's invasion of Crimea, is that Ukrainians came together to fight for freedom. A wide range of people from across the political spectrum, and many who were completely new to politics. Although they may have held widely different views on how society should be organized, they nonetheless coalesced around higher values, like freedom, justice, and transparency, and fought together to defend them, and are still fighting now, nine years on. Bogdan serves with the Armed Forces of Ukraine. And today, in the conversation with Bogdan, I'm going to be joined by a collaborator on the channel, Dean, um, who's going to help out to keep the conversation flowing um, and really try to understand not only what is going on in the front lines, but how Ukraine can achieve victory, what it needs to achieve victory, and to get a better understanding of how the whole range of Ukrainian society is coming together to try and liberate its territory. Bogdan, welcome. Welcome. Hello. Well, let's... Let's start with the state of the war, because we hear various things. And having been in Ukraine last week, I heard a number of positive things and a number of worrying things. Um, one of the worrying things is the difficulty, really, of making progress in the offensive that is rolling out at the moment. And the fact that Russia has been allowed to build its defensive up, defenses up uh, and that it's proving to be quite costly and difficult to degrade Russia's defensives. So what's your what's your view on the counteroffensive and how's it going? It's going in the, no, in the normal way. You have a lot of problems, but it's uh, every war have a lot of problems and new situations or something uh, what you can change. For example, uh, in this way, you have uh, two mines, uh, our earth. Our earth is two mines, a lot of mines. It's a big problem for our infantry and for our technique. And I see various clips of innovative solutions to the demining problem, but you're dealing with something on a vast scale, aren't you? The length of the front line is is actually longer than the Eastern Front in the Second World War. So this is a, a huge uh, problem to deal with. It's a huge challenge, isn't it? Uh, yes, it's a big uh, squares uh, which are mined. Uh, it's a big problem. So a lot of trenches, a lot of um, preparing positions of Russians. It's a big war. You need to understand. It's a very big war. And that that really, you know, one of the other concerns, of course, is the slow supply of some weaponry, but also the promises that have been made by many Western countries. Either the equipment is is not being delivered uh, in terms of the sort of complete packages that are promised. It's slow. I've also seen reports that some equipment comes and it needs quite a lot of repairs and attention before it can actually be used on the front line. In your view, what do we need to be doing to help Ukraine actually win rather than just survive? Uh, of course, we are glad uh, and we are... Uh always thanks for the, all the help from the Western countries. Uh, what we need, of course, we need uh, planes because we, we have not enough of them. We need more weapons, we need more uh, mines and uh, a lot of a lot of, of this. We need a lot of weapons. Soldiers we have, but we need a lot of weapons because in big war, weapons are uh, always uh, finished, ammo is finished. Uh, no, we, of course, people are, are also finished will be finished. Well, we'll come to the topic of training as well, because training is another interesting area, which you've got a unique perspective on. Um, but one of the other worrying things I hear is that in the first part of the war, we know that Russia lost a lot of equipment and they lost a lot of uh, sort of heavy vehicles, especially in the Kharkiv offensive to, to Ukraine, who managed to gain some of that equipment. But We've seen endless videos of Russian soldiers with very, very poor equipment, uh, you know, terrible, ill-fitting uniforms, dreadful helmets and old rusty rifles. But that shouldn't make us complacent because the news I hear from multiple sources is that the Chinese are now supplying uh, the Russians with equipment in huge quantities um, and things like night scopes, drones, uh, and uh, potentially uniforms and other things. Do you think it's an issue that uh, Russia is still being supplied or getting supplies uh, in greater quantities than it was uh, maybe a year ago? 
in, su in such way, yes, because uh, as you say, for, for example, China is uh, getting some supplies for the Russia, uh, but uh, Russia also have the big supplies of their own uh, weapons and ammo. Maybe not, for example, a uniform, but uh, some uh, AK, for example. We also use their weapons because the weapons is similar with Soviet uh, system weapons. It's similar, it's uh, a lot of ammo and nothing uh, problem to use it. Uh, for example, Western, for, uh, to prepare to use Western weapons, we need some time to learn how to use it, how to use it properly uh, and how to you know, make it work, you know. And does that require Western training and support or for experienced battalions like the one you're part of, are you able to sort of, you know, figure that out and sort of train yourselves using senior and experienced officers? Um, or does it really vary across the Ukrainian army? You know, do some benefit from Western training and, and others perhaps don't need know so much? Uh, you need to understand that, uh, for example, Ukraine have uh, new experience of this war. Uh, no other country have this experience. The experience of the modern and new and uh, new way of getting of new way of making a war. Uh, in, in my opinion, it will be better to learn Ukrainian soldier in Ukraine. It will be much cheaper. It will be uh, with using uh, some knowledge with which we know. And will be much much better and uh, not waste uh, much time for the soldier. And is there a big difference between uh, you know people like yourselves and some of your uh, comrades who have been fighting actually for many years, not just since February last year, but going all the way back to the invasion of Crimea and Donbas? Is there a difference between the sort of level of skill and training requirements of those much more experienced soldiers? And, you know, the huge numbers of people who've been drafted in from civilian life over the last year, you know, software engineers, goodness, you know, hairdressers, gardeners, teachers, etc. And for example, I have experience of the ATO and OS. I have I was in the military in, uh, from the 14 to 16. And I also joined the army uh, with the new invasion of Russia. Of course, it's a two big, two, uh, two. No, we can say it war, but it's one war. War. It's a two different situation. Uh, in uh, fourteen or sixteen, uh, we can see the Russians using the a lot of people from the separatist organization or troops, and uh, give them a lot of weapons uh, which uh, locals can use because there was not military. There was like just some terrorists, some uh, uh, private military companies, something like this. But in 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 this big invasion, uh, Russia is using their forces on the full. No, uh, they're using all the all military machines what they have. It's a big difference, but the experience of the uh, uh, before the invasion it's also a big part of our knowledge because we uh, we compare this and we know what will be uh, in will be in future. And from some of the people I've spoken to about 2014, it seems that the state of the Ukrainian army in 2014 was relatively unprepared for, uh, you know, Russia's uh, offensive operations at that time, but also perhaps politically unprepared uh, to, to resist that. It seems there's been a huge transformation and a lot of work done to build out the Ukrainian army, its expertise, uh, its sort of strategic and sort of tactical capabilities what has been your impression of what's been going on over the last nine years because if russia had mounted a full-scale invasion in 2014 it's highly likely that they may have overrun the whole country but now uh you know um they weren't able to and you know it's very unlikely they'll be able to this year or next year uh actually take any new significant territories uh, yes, I agree. Uh, war, uh, our Ukrainian army wasn't prepared for the war in 2014. It was uh, politically un unprepared, military unprepared, society wasn't prepared for this war. But we uh, learn quick uh, and we have big changes. Our army uh, have much, much 
and the biggest progress in maybe in Ukrainian history. And now we have pretty normal army uh, with um, old equipment, new equipment, with all equipment. We are uh, using it properly, uh, training our soldier, uh, get, getting better and better. Uh, but Russia don't have such uh, big options because uh, they lose too much in Ukraine, too much lose their Russian Russian soldiers and techniques. And uh, uh, they, the main their problem is they are not preparing, uh, the world not preparing like in ideolog ideological way, you know. We are uh, fighting for the, our freedom, they fight for what? For some land in some other country. No, it's not serious. And that's an interesting point you make there, because both in the war, but also going back to Maidan as well, where, you know, you had to resist um, potentially a slide back into authoritarianism, like we've seen in Russia, like we've seen in Belarus, you know, the resurgence of a Soviet-style repressive regime. In both Maidan and the current war, you have people from every political background you know all the way through from sort of left wing through to right wing uh you have people who of multiple religions uh, ethnicities backgrounds cultures and we see in you know the us and the uk especially a lot of divisions is as if people aren't part of the same country because they you know what divides them overcomes anything that they might have in common that doesn't seem to be the case in ukraine people with very very different visions of how society should be run nonetheless are uniting around simple ideas like freedom like having uh you know independent judiciary justice system that is fair uh, reducing corruption and so on would you agree with that? And then I'll turn the question to you and ask, what are you fighting for? What future Ukraine are you fighting for? Yes, I agree. Our society and the, we have joined in one uh, one mission to survive and uh, uh, defeat Russia because uh, we don't have other options. Uh, I agree that we have a, a different nation, a different, uh, I don't know, people from the business, from the school, uh, all united in one uh, in one big team to defeat Russia. When peace comes, and I think Dean and myself are, like some others, uh, absolutely convinced that uh, that eventually uh, Ukraine will be victorious in terms of its maximalist aims, which is to take back Donbass and Crimea, then, of course, comes the stage where people are going to have to come together in peacetime and agree uh, and, uh, you know, fight for a better politics. What's your vision of a peacetime Ukraine and the kind of values uh, that you want to see prevail? Because, of course, in the past, corruption has been an issue. Oligarchy has been an issue um, and, and many other things as well. So what do you think are you, values which should unite people in peacetime as well? First of all, uh, Ukrainian, like in society way, it's uh, already complete, like uh, no, in democratic way. Our society is uh, getting together to fix some problems. For example, Maidan or war or some volunteers problem. We are always uh, getting together. After the war, after they will take our, the, all our territories, Crimea also. It will be, uh, it will be time uh, to rebuild Ukraine, rebuild uh, our political society. To rebuild our society, to heal all the veterans, uh, and build new big country. Uh, because we don't have other options, you know. Uh, all the territories, territories was uh, which was taken, we need a lot of time to back them, like uh, in society, like in moral, in by financial, by the language, uh, by the, all these points. Uh, it will be big time for Ukraine. Uh, it and we also new uh, must be preparing for the some maybe new war because Russia if if we won't defeat Russia uh, and don't uh, kill all the Russian state uh, Russia will attack us will attack us once again in short time and do you think being part of NATO and the EU could provide some protections against future Russian aggression in such a way yes but uh, my uh, own opinion, my own opinion, that we must be uh, like be separated. We must be like Ukraine, 
for Ukraine, Russia must be separated, NATO is good, it must be closed, uh, but I think Ukraine has their own way to make Ukraine away. Mm. And that, that perhaps, you know, some of the lessons of working with Western partners this year, they do supply a lot, they have been supportive, but things come with delays and not everything is asked for. So would you have the view that it's good to partner with European countries, but not be reliant or dependent on them? Is that uh, is that your feeling there? Ukraine needs to be self-sufficient in things like sort of missiles, drone production, uh, you know, it's military complex, like Israel needs to be able to, uh, if, it, if it has to, defend itself and produce its own armaments. Of course, we, we, we must be, uh, we must do uh, in Ukrainian way, like in our way. Uh, of course, uh, we are glad and we thank you for the help of the Western countries, but uh, we also can make it by by own. We need some time to build all the structure. But uh, yes, we want to to uh, make it by in Ukrainian way. We are glad that they given us give us uh, some uh, materials for war. But uh, we want to make it in our Ukrainian way because uh, no Western politics uh, or Western countries uh, maybe they want to give us something, but they can't because they have their own responsibilities. Uh, they hope they have uh, their own army. We understand that they can't give us uh, all what we. Uh, ask them because they have their own um, governments, politics, army. We understand this situation. No, they that why is this? And of course, part of the resilience uh, and what you're fighting for is also the Ukrainian language. Now, I know that Russian is still very prevalent uh, in parts of the country, uh, you know, in in the south and the east, uh, and there are a lot of Russian speakers amongst the the refugees. But when I was in Ukraine, and from many of the Ukrainians I've speaking to, uh, and, and many have come from the East, so Russian was their first language, many have over the last couple of years been uh, you know, improving their Ukrainian or perfecting the Ukrainian, and many have now made the switch to speaking in Ukrainian and, and, and dropping Russian out of their lives. Do you think future security of uh, Ukraine, not just its identity, but its future security also rests on this transition to the Ukrainian language in, uh, you know, government and and various other institutions. Uh, yes, I agree. Our Ukrainian society is, uh, understands that uh, one of the uh, one of the biggest problem of Ukraine now, uh, after the war, of course, it's uh, Russian language. Uh, a lot of people in Ukraine speak uh, in in Russian language, but they understand that this is a language of our, uh, no, our not not friends, you know. Uh, that's why they change their language. They no in Ukraine we understand in Russian and Ukrainian uh, we can speak both. But in school, university, all the state uh, government um, departments working on just on Ukraine language, it's impossible uh, to work on Russian, for example, to be some. In some department of the Ministry of Defense, it's impossible, and uh, we need time to change it because Russian language is a big problem for Ukraine. Of course, uh, we will change it slowly. Uh, we will change it. That makes sense, and uh, I think Dean's going to jump in a second. I was going to ask you about your experiences because you've had two different sort of tours of duty in the current full-scale war, and as you say, in twenty fourteen to sixteen. What are the major differences and experiences you've had of fighting uh, Russians in both of these instances? The big difference uh, in the first uh, variant of, of the war, Russians don't, don't use uh, in full uh, in full uh, their all militaries. They don't use them like in 100%. In this way, in this uh, new new scale, they use them the 100%. Uh, they don't. They don't uh, using, uh, for example, this uh, separatist. They just using Russian army or the private some companies. No, private military com companies. Uh, and now, Ukraine army was prepared for this war. We have a lot of casualties. We have a lot of loss of techniques. A lot of losing territories. But it's big war. It's impossible to don't lose anything in such a big war. 
uh, it's a big difference to, to war in first, to make war in first time and in second. Big difference and also we uh, want to finish this question because uh, Russia don't allow us to do this in this way, we will finish in this war. And do you see any evidence that Russian um, officers are learning from their mistakes or are they still repeating the same mistakes they made you know, earlier in the war that led to such losses of territory and you know, Russian troops? Uh, we saw these so-called sort of human meat wave attacks uh, that Wagner were doing in Bakhmut, you know, really crude tactics. But is it dangerous to underestimate the enemy and are they learning from their mistakes? Yes, of course, they're learning uh, slowly, but they're learning, of course, because they're also military. They're learning uh, and they change their techniques. Uh, it was changed, for example, uh, from this, this winter, it's changed uh, in different directions. In in winter, for example, in Bakhmut, they're using a lot of infantry, like like you say, like meat, like, you know, very, very and white. But they change, they change now, they work in uh, little groups, they're using too much artillery, they use too much tanks, uh, too, too much FPV drones, uh, like they make this war like we uh, in our way, we make it more modern, you know, we use new techniques, use uh, drones, FPV to, to make it more uh, uh, less casualties, you know. Dean, anyone want to jump in there with, uh, with any more questions? Uh, I, I was just laughing because um, statistically it's um, more dangerous to drive a truck in the United States than to be deployed to Afghanistan. And that sums up what type of war that was. <laughs> <laughs> no offense to anybody. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, a, a couple of things, like in the interview, Bogdan said mines, he, they need more mines. What he really means is projectiles and shells and bullets and 155 millimeter, 120 millimeter mortar mines, right, Bogdan? Is that what you're speaking to? Yes, yes. Yeah. And like how much, like, so you're, when the title separate uh, is attached to a military unit in Ukraine, it means that you are responsible for getting your own um, funding. Is that correct? Or no, in Ukraine, the Ministry of Defense uh, buying something. Our, for example, our brigade uh, can can buy just for their own money some equipment. They can't buy for the government money what they what we want. For example, in Ukraine, it's not working like this. Just Ministry of Defense buying all equipment for the military, for the, for the government money. So you've got to raise money to buy your own equipment, more or less. Uh, yes, you have some funding, you have some people which are donate something. No, in Ukraine, it's normal because uh, we have tradition from the Maidan, from the 2014, when the army wasn't prepared for this war. It was, the army was almost dead. Uh, they don't have a normal uh, uniform, you know. Uh, in and uh, it's begin tradition to donate something. If you don't want to go to war, if you don't want to kill something, someone, or uh, just want to help, you need to donate, and we will buy uh, equipment, some weapons. Uh... All of my friends say, "Well, what about these Ukrainian Nazis?" And I talk to them about Bogdan, and they they label him a Nazi, and it occurs to me like this the old joke. You know, Putin's a bartender in the middle of a town in the middle of the desert. And then this, this Ukrainian Nazi walks in from the desert and he's famished and goes up to Putin, the bartender, and says, can I have a beer? Right. That's what you'd expect him to do. But instead, what he says is quack. And then Putin walk, walks around and, you know, what's going on? Why can't you speak properly? And then the quote unquote Ukrainian Nazi says quack. And then me sitting at the end of the bar, so he's quacking because he's not a Ukrainian Nazi. He's a little black duck. People are, uh, he, people are just labeling. Uh, they're, they're just buying into the uh, Russian narrative. And uh, this is causing a lot of contention in, uh, in the United States. 
between you know Republicans and Democrats and all the rest. And just from what we just uh, saw from Bogdan's replies, he's anything but a Nazi. A Nazi occurs for me as something that's evil, and Putin occurs for me as evil. Evil being something that damages humanity. And if you have a person who's fighting for their freedom, fighting for their country, that's the antithesis of a Nazi. That's exactly not a Nazi. So I, I just would like to get get that out on you know the elephant in the room out on the table and just debunk this whole thing. Uh, yes, uh, of course, the Western countries, some Western politics, or some maybe some even government governments say that we are Nazis. Uh, we are not Nazis. We are just Ukrainian uh, patriots, maybe something more. But uh, why we can be patriots? Uh, every country has their own patriots. Patriots are fighting in their armies for the, their society, civilian, families, uh, religion, uh, for their homes, for example. Of course, uh, no. If some people from United States think that, think that we are Nazis, come to Lviv, come to Dnipro, come to Kiev, come to Ternopol, come to Kriverich, Odessa, and you, do, you won't see the uh, people are marching with swastika, third Reich uniform, uh, some, I don't know, no, something like this. You won't see this. You will see the uh, Ukraine, a very beautiful country, uh, country in the, in the stage of war, well, you will see a lot of militaries, a lot of people are uh, without uh, hands, legs, uh, no, you have a lot of capitals, you know. And you will understand that we are not Nazis. And not only that, you're also fighting alongside people who you may not necessarily agree with. You're fighting alongside, uh, you know, Jews, Arabs, all sorts of people from around the world uh, coming together to uh, sort of fight together um how important is it for you that people can actually come together you know despite their disagreements and how important was it actually during maidan uh that people came together despite having very difficult you know different very different uh sort of political backgrounds but they recognized that what united them was a uh you know a potentially very repressive regime that was prepared to use extreme violence. Uh, <clears throat> for example, in, in my brigade, in my battalion, we don't have, for, for example, Arabs. We have uh, Jews, we have Russians, we have people from the Finland, uh, Austria, Australia, United States, uh, United Kingdom, Estonia, Czech Republic. Uh, it's, no, it's, it's, not, it's normal for us. Uh, because you no, know, if people want to join us, people want to fight against Russia. They they see all the evil, and they want to join us and to fight. Uh, Maidan, uh, of course, there was also people from, for for example, Russia, Belarus, uh, people from Israel. Uh, you know, like just people, they want to join. They see the unfair situation in Ukraine with politics, with police, with the. Uh, with Yanukovych, they want to uh, help us. They want to see how we will uh, finish this problem, how we will fix it. And they and they see and they see that it's it's working. Maybe not in uh, some legal way, maybe not some beautiful way, but it's working in Ukrainian way, old school Ukrainian way. No, it's like very 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 ancient uh, Ukrainian way. And that's an interesting point for me because. This is something I think which is quite uncomfortable to many in the West um, and difficult to understand. I'd like to get your point of view on this. Extreme violence was used by the regime uh, in Kiev. They had the Berkut uh, sort of special security forces who we believe were also uh, you know, trained by um, Russian uh, agents, uh, GRU or FSB or whatever it was. Um, and probably had advisors from Russia uh, among their ranks as well, pushing them to use extreme violence. Now, if the protests in Maidan had not been prepared to push back against that violence and use some degree of force, um, you know, I suspect they may not have won. And I think that's a very difficult point for people to accept you know people talk about you know you follow the law you don't use violence peaceful protests etc but at some point 
an enemy that is going to use extreme violence against you and you're not prepared to stand up, as it were, against that, um, you know, you run the risk of defeat. So what's your interpretation of, of Maidan? Was it just civil society? Was it huge numbers of people that won the day? Or was it that you were also prepared to meet violence with a certain degree of violence to succeed? Uh, yes, uh, it's a big question. I was in Maidan and I've seen the, all the situation, how it uh, goes to the I mean, heart, a very cruel way. Uh, there was peace, peaceful, peaceful protest. Uh, then the regime using the police officers. Uh, we need to understand that we, um, uh, how it say, uh, we don't like to use force against the police uh, when it's like in is when it's all in legal way. When it's not legal, way, we can use force because uh, it's very uh, proudly and very freely, freely. Freedomly country, you know. Uh, in Maidan, the police officers uh, maybe not so trained by Russia, but there was also people from the uh, Russian uh, police forces in Ukrainian, in Ukrainian uniform with Ukrainian weapons, uh, with Ukrainian some documents in Ukrainian structure. You know, there was like sent from the Russia to the because they understand the police officers are also Ukrainian. Uh, they often time uh, they uh, don't want to. Uh, uh, for example, to shoot or to kick uh, you just civilian or just some, some woman. They uh, was uh, going after from their work. They was like separate from their squads. They want to go out and don't see all this, uh, all this hate, all this, all this fight. They just want to go home. Uh, yes, society is uh, turning in a good way because uh, society wasn't prepared for this. They, they don't understand what's going on with this regime because everything's like it's like normal, everything's working, but the students can't make some protest. Why it's it's legal? You can't. It's why it's nothing so bad. Uh, then the, we need to come and uh, to change the situation. Of course, in Maidan there was a lot of uh, people from the old, like in war, you know, like in in the army. You have people from the different uh, societies we have different from the different cities regions uh, from the i don't know different countries everybody want to join this uh, big freedom uh, move to change situation and we change it maybe not some legal way maybe not some good way maybe uh, it finished not so uh, good for ukraine because uh, war uh, just begin and the politics wasn't also preparing for this new politics which uh, no, become politics from the after the Yanukovych has escaped from the country and you've mentioned that uh, you're fighting alongside some russians and of course there have been insurgent units that have been injected into russia to try and destabilize it um these people obviously are, are are doing something brave. You know, they're fighting against their own country, against their own uh, citizens, as it were, for Ukrainian freedom. Do you think after the war, these people will go back to Russia to try and change it? Or are they much more likely to remain in Ukraine and uh, and create their lives there instead, you know, the country they've ended up fighting for? Uh, no, if the, we will win this war and Russia will be defeated in 100%, of course, they want to return to Russia because Russia is their native country. Uh, they want to change it in political way, in society, in financial, like in, we in our way. We change it and we uh, we like it. They want to change it. And a lot of uh, Russians which come to Ukraine, like they come to Ukraine uh, because the regime is want to uh, kick them in jail, for example, to kill them. Uh, they come to fight against Russians, against Russian regime. Maybe not against Russian people, but but against the uh, Russian regime. But we we fight against Russian regime and against Russian. Uh, we don't see any difference between them because, uh, no, for example, if you don't want to go to war, you don't want to go to war. You don't need to sign any papers. You don't need to take weapons. You don't need to go to trenches. We have people in pain which don't want to fight. We don't uh, say that you must fight. If you want to fight, go to fight and uh, kill Russians. But no, it's, it's just simple. For me, it's just simple. Russian propaganda has also got a real thing about Azov, 
Um, the siege of Azovstal uh, was a, a key focus early on in the war, but also they continuously label anyone to do with Azov regiments as being fanatical, and as Dean said, as being Nazi. Everything I hear, however, is that there's a range of people there, and actually the Azov regiments have gone through a number of changes over the years. They've been formed and reformed and trained, and people from different units come in. So what's your view of the sort of history of uh, Azov and the regiments in that region, um, both as military specialists, but also as a sort of you know, real subject of, of Russian propagandists? Mm, no, Azov. So people with uh, good education, people with uh, like good patriot, people are uh, know what to do in war. They like professional militaries. Uh, uh, with in uh, twenty fourteen, it was normal to be in a radical way, and to be in patriotic, patriotical some uh, organization or movement or even uh, some battalions, companies. It's normal for Ukraine. Uh, we have a lot of uh, patriotic movement, patriotic organization, patriotic battalion. It's normal because no, we have one idea to defeat Russia, kill Russians. We have one job to do. And uh, it's good. Azov good. Third Brigade good. Some Aydar good. Uh, everything is good that kill Russians in our way. No. Jew kill uh, Russians uh, in, our, in our brigade, for example. No. Nothing bad for us. And the 3rd Brigade is a particularly experienced battalion, isn't it? So you have a lot of people who you were fighting with who have extensive experience. Is that unusual when you compare it to other battalions who've been formed you know, during the full-scale war? No, of course, uh, so the Brigade was uh, formed in the uh, in first uh, days of this big-scale war, in a new wave of, of war. And uh, it's have a lot of experience now because... War is uh, getting much, much, much harder, much, much bigger. We have a lot of loss. And no. yes, now it's experience. It's very big brigade, very professional brigade. It's normal equipment, every kind of equipment. West, Soviet, Russian. We have a lot of, for example, Russian techniques, which Russian uh, don't want to take with them, for example, in Kiev company. Uh, it's not good, good for them, but good for us. And NATO training, when we were preparing for the interview, you uh, you expressed some, um, I think it was doubts about the uh, usefulness of NATO training for everybody. Um, so what's, what's your view? I mean, would you benefit, for instance, from any NATO training or do you think your direct experience of war uh, is, uh, is, is, is more relevant to what's happening now? Of course, for example, if we take uh, United States, they have experience of different wars, of different companies, but they don't uh, have experience of this war. It's it's too different, you know. Uh, that's why, in my opinion, uh, to better to train Ukrainian soldier in Ukraine, uh, it will be good also for all the Western countries because they will have, uh, no, they they must come or if they, if they won't come to take some experience from the Ukrainian soldiers. It's good because uh, Russia is in Syria, in uh, in Africa, in, in a lot of countries, because no, it's Russia, it's, it's imperial. Uh, yes, in my opinion, we need to train Ukrainian soldiers in Ukraine because Western uh, training, Western uh, some instructors, say they don't have such experience in this war. It's too different war. It's not Afghanistan. It's not Iraq because I know because I know a lot of people uh, from Ukrainian army, which was in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's too different, you know. It's too different. You can't compare it. No, in my opinion, it's uh, Western countries make good move, but they don't understand uh, how to prepare Ukrainian soldiers for this big war. It's, it's a big problem. And talking of sort of mines, obviously mine clearance and various other equipment and techniques are going to be incredibly important once those territories are liberated. When it comes to equipment, we've mentioned uh, planes, you know, whether that's F-16s, which were announced today, actually, that they will eventually be coming. Um, there are also other things like long-range uh, missile capability. You know, Storm Shadow is, is now in use. There's a French version of that as well. But 
attackums is something that's also been required. How important do you think is it for, say, laying siege to Crimea and disrupting Russian logistics to have more long-range missile capability? Uh, every military understands that the, to make war faster, to make it uh, more bad for the enemy, you need to destroy the back uh, and uh, of their uh, enemy army. You need to destroy, destroy their infrastructure, roads, uh, all the all the equipment, even the barracks. You need to destroy everything what the, you can reach to make uh, your forces uh, no to to survive. You know. It's normal for us. It's normal in uh, in every war, um, every Western country, for example. We need to destroy the six to be succeed in our trail. That makes makes perfect sense. Um, Dean, I don't know if you had any other questions there. I'm certainly, I think, reached the the end of the list that I put together there, and I think that gives us a really good sense of what's going on. It gives us a good sense of of what more you know the west needs to be doing i guess my last question is something that's come up um in the last week and it's a really worrying uh conversation and that is some western political analysts and indeed people within nato and i suspect uh you know various governments like washington as well are starting to talk about land for peace and some kind of negotiation with russia uh to give away chunks of Ukraine. Now, I think we'll all probably agree that that is a terrible idea, um, that no treaty that is signed with Russia is worth the paper it's written on. But are Ukrainians going to give any attention at all to people trying to persuade them to give up land for apparent peace deal? For Ukraine, Ukrainian... Uh... For Ukrainian army, for Ukrainian people, society, it's unacceptable. Unacceptable to give uh, some territories to the, our enemies, and uh, that's all. For example, uh, why in, uh, United States won't give their territories for the our peace? Give us, give Texas to Russia, and it will be peace. Why not? Alaska, you know, maybe that that's a good piece for land. No, deal. it's like yeah. just just example. Okay, Alaska, good snow, very good. Russia likes snow. Give them Alaska. They will agree. No, they won't agree. But there, because it's their territory, is it's their state, their government, their nation, their rules. No, it's their territory. No, it's it's unlawful to take their territory. The same in Ukraine. No, why some people? From the other countries decide what we need to do no because it's in in it's uh, talk about nazis just nazis decide what they need to do what what the other nations or other countries must to do to stop something or do something some uh, some western countries uh, or government uh, explain some peaceful plans no. it's it's very uh, for ukrainians it's like no we even can hear about this. It's it's very unwise, very stupid, uh, and we just love. Mm. Oh, actually, I don't think that's a bad idea. What you just said, give up Alaska, not Alaska, because we all love Alaska. I I think New Jersey. We could sell New Jersey to uh, Russia and solve a lot of problems for one dollar. Yeah. Right, and it's so small that one tank of uh, gas and an M one A one tank, we can take it back. You know, it's not <laughs> not a problem. But what what you're speaking to though, um, Jonathan is um, okay. So my background's uh, predictive uh, analytics, right? Uh, predicting bad things that would happen to the United States, and I was very good at it. So to do that, you create a model, and um, th that works for everybody. And that model is the punitive justice system. Oh, that's a baseline, and that creates different products. And the things that we're seeing, like why would the United States drag its feet on yada yada? Why would why would a particular gentleman in NATO say something inexplicably stupid? Right? Um, there's no other way to describe it. And of course, he doesn't have skills. So two of the products that a punitive justice system creates, and we all live under a punitive justice system. NATO is a punitive justice system. Russia, Ukraine, United States, 
Japan, name any country, it's some sort of punitive justice system. And they all create products. And two of these products are skill sets, manager skills, where you do things right, and leader skills, where you do the right thing. And so for a NATO guy to say something that's stupid, he's not actually being stupid. He might be quite intelligent, but he doesn't have the skill set called leader skills, do the right thing skills. He has a, a waiting in manager skills, doing things right skills. And when you get a discrepancy between the two, like they're both equally important, or they seem to be, but when you get a discrepancy between the two, then you get assumptions being formed. And Dietrich Dorner wrote a book called The Logic of Failure. Assumptions are the root cause of all human failure. This war would not happen if Putin hadn't made assumptions. And the reason why Russians are so easy to kill is because they make assumptions. Right. And that's just a product of their system. Uh, you know, um, I think Putin's evil. That's my personal opinion. Evil being something that damages humanity. And uh, it's really important for Ukraine to win this fight because it is about freedom. And it occurs to me that we need freedom in the world in order to be able to tackle big, big problems. Freedom is like a playground for ideas to solve big problems. And I haven't heard anyone speaking about this. This is not just Ukraine's fight. This is a fight for humanity. Because if you let somebody like Russia and Putin win, then that decreases freedom and that decreases our ability to solve big problems. Whether And you're innovation in the... too. I mean, it limits exactly. the power of innovation. Um, to pick up on one thing. So if this NATO guy is exercising yeah. his managerial skill, which he sees as sensible within his world, and it's not a leadership skill, that means that idea wasn't his idea. It means that he has accidentally said the quiet bit out loud. He has expressed an idea that he didn't originate, but he will have heard and he will have heard other influential people behind the scenes using. That's the thing that kind of worries me, that this is not just an aberration, that this is an idea that is doing the rounds in Washington, maybe even sort of Brussels and, and, and NATO, um, and maybe even getting some traction. It's also an idea which is a direct provocation to Vladimir Putin, because where he sees weakness, where he sees the willingness to negotiate, he will double down on aggression. Now, I'd love to hear Bogdan's point of view on that, because you've been fighting the Russian mindset now for many, many years. So how does Putin interpret this kind of weakness uh, on the Western side? Uh, uh, for, for example, uh, Western country or government, even some political in NATO, uh, they want to, they want just peace. What kind of peace? What kind of peace they want? They want that everything will be okay? No, it's impossible because we are we live in uh, in Earth. It's impossible. We always make some wars, make some fight. Uh, it's it's impossible to make peace on the all, all around the world. It's impossible. No, it's like for for me, it's impossible. For example, uh, Russia using them because uh, uh, some politics in Europe they want just to give up, give everything. What they want to stop war, to make it peace, everything will be good, uh, financial is uh, going, uh, oil is going to Europe, uh, gas, oil, everything is good, German people uh, don't make protest against the, the uh, don't have some gas or, uh, or some benzene, I don't know, for example. Uh, I think just people don't understand what to, fi what to fight, what to fight uh, for their uh, countries for their families, for their religion, for their language, uh, for their no, I don't, earth, for their trees. They don't, they don't understand because the last war, uh, for example, for Europe, it was too long. It was too long ago. Uh, for example, Tribaltic people, they understand. If you talk with them, they understand what is what is going on. War is nearby uh, because they have uh, big neighbors as we have. They understand, but they have a big problem because they they have two small countries. We have big countries. We have big, uh, big ideas, big militaries, a lot of people, big country. No, for for us it's it's normal. But for example, uh, Lithuania, they are too small. 
that's why they're helping us in 100%. They give us all their weapons, like, like example, all helicopters or uh, BMP. They, they want to, that we uh, make this war in our way, that we, that we want this war. But uh, for the people from Belgium or Germany or France, Spain, everything is good. They don't, uh, they don't have any problems. In, they, are, they think that they don't have any problems, but they yet. have a lot of problems. Yes, yes. No, it will be gone. It's, you know, nothing will change. That's why we need to defeat, defeat all big, this terri- uh, big terrorists, uh, like in, I don't know, like Gaddafi, for example. No, it's maybe not so, not so good example, but Putin is very uh, bad. He very bad person. He don't want to build Russia. She don't want to build roads, uh, hospitals, uh, I don't know, um, cities, business. Uh, he just want to make some, some territories in Syria, in Afghanistan, in Ukraine. Uh, they, for example, take some territories, they even don't build there anything. That's right. And before we started, we were talking about, you know, villages and the impression of being in Ukraine where... Ukrainians value the land they've got. They tend it, they look after it, they plant uh, uh, flowers, vegetables, etc. You can see that the land that they possess is being used and cherished. Whereas, you know, my direct experience of, of Russia is that uh, a lot of the land they own, a lot of the land they covet of their neighbours, you know, they'll take it, but they won't know what to do with it. In fact, they'll trash it, destroy it, pollute it, Um Anyone who's traveled through the Russian countryside will will know that it's uh, it's not good and it's not not treated productively or kindly. I think we'll probably have to end there. I'm sure Dean's got a million more questions as have I, but I think we're we're out of time there. And I wanted to say thank you, Bogdan, for speaking to us. Also, thank you for everything you and your um, your colleagues are doing to fight for freedom in Europe. I mean, some of us understand what you're doing and are immensely grateful also thank you for this interview slavo ukraine